You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Steve Serio started playing wheelchair basketball when he was 14 years old and went on to play at the University of Illinois, where he led the team to a national championship. He would go on to play professionally in Germany for a few years and also in four Paralympic Games for Team USA, bringing home back-to-back gold medals in 2016 and 2020. He is equally interested in the difference he makes off the court as he made on the court. So let's chat with him. So Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to chat with you. So I thought, you know, for folks that may just not know about your background, that we would just start a little bit with a brief introduction of, of you. Uh, and and maybe we could start with just um, when you got involved in sport and uh, how, uh, how impactful was sport uh, and sports to you growing up? Yeah, sure. So for your audience, uh, a little bit of background. My name is Steve Serio. I am the co-captain of the men's wheelchair basketball team for Team USA, two-time Paralympic gold medalist and SB winner. And uh, my journey, I like to tell people my journey started when I was 11 months old. I was actually born with a benign spinal tumor that went undiagnosed for those first 11 months of my life. During that time, the tumor became infected and inflamed and crushed my spinal cord, resulting in the incomplete paralysis of my lower extremities. So living with a disability, it's it's all I know. It's all I remember. Despite it, my parents and my family were determined to give me a, a normal childhood, quote unquote. I went to a public school system. I had able-bodied friends. I played able-bodied sports to the best of my abilities. But to be honest, my childhood was about fitting into a world that was not built for me. I have always been an athlete from the very beginning, but my athletic journey at that time was basically about fitting into an able-bodied sports scene. I was a big baseball player growing up. And when, for instance, when it was my turn to hit, I would step up to the plate. And at that time, I was trying again to fit in with my able-bodied counterparts. So I was walking with these big clunky braces and I was walking with crutches because everyone around me was walking and I wanted to walk too. So I remember I would step up to the plate and I would hit the ball and one of my friends would run down the first for me. And then I would take his or her place when the play was over. And that was what it meant for me to be an athlete. It was about, um, you know, just being with my friends, fitting in, playing to my best of my abilities, even though I was never the best player because I was pretty limited in my mobility. And then it was when I was about 14 or 15 years old through a physical therapist, I discovered uh, the world of wheelchair basketball. And this was before the age of social media. So I didn't know anything about the world of adaptive sports. And I remember going down to a wheelchair basketball practice for the first time and not having any idea of what the sport entailed. I kind of felt like we played on these little four foot Fisher Price foot hoops like they have for kids because I didn't know how you dribble. I didn't know how you shoot from a wheelchair. But I remember going down and sitting in a basketball chair for the first time, pushing up and down the court and going through that first practice and feeling like this was something I was always meant to do. For the first time in my life, there was a world that was built for me. 
and that I was free from my disability um, for the first time in my life. And wheelchair basketball has given me everything that I have to this day. And I tell people that I haven't left the gym since in about 20 <laughs> or so on years. Exactly. No, you haven't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when you were introduced to wheelchair basketball, since, since you mentioned that you, you know, use crutches uh, and uh, did you, were you also used to a chair or did you use a chair as part of maybe a, your everyday mobility or was that kind of a new introduction as well? It was a completely new introduction for me. Again, um, all my friends were able-bodied friends. They were walking around school, so I needed to walk around school. Um, they walked to and from school. I wanted to walk to and from school. It was just, again, me just trying to fit in. And it wasn't until I was introduced to wheelchair basketball where I found kids and parents that had similar experiences to me and my loved ones, where I was finally able to embrace my disability and not shy away from it and not be insecure about it. Um, from that first practice on, I remember I ordered my very first basketball wheelchair and my very first everyday chair. And I remember going into school the first day that I used a wheelchair and my friends looked at me, they were all puzzled. And they, I remember one, one of my friends said to me, wow, this is the first time I ever saw you with a disability. Hmm. And that phrase, it still stuck with me. It blew my mind because yeah, all of my time and energy were going into fitting into this world. And now that I'm finally embracing it, now people kind of see that I'm different. You know, it just didn't, it, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't compute, but it took me a lot to embrace my disability. And instead of shying away from it, I found a world that allowed me to embrace um, the things that made me different. And I learned that by embracing the things that made me different, I was able to shatter any limitations anyone would ever try to place upon me. And I'm just so grateful to have found that world better late than never, I suppose. <laughs> oh, true. But, but, at, you know, we can always, we always have our, you know, our, our current reflections on that experience. And then of course, our reflections, of course, during, during that experience, were, were you reluctant? You know, I mean, the first time you, I mean, the first time you rolled into a school, your school in, in a chair, were, were there, was there fear, anxiety, uh, or did you truly embrace it right away? To be honest, there's always a little bit of fear when it comes to transitions like that. But to be honest, I just remember thinking, man, this is just so much easier <laughs> than walking through school and carrying my backpack rather than sitting in a chair and just, um, you know, kind of just embracing that part of me. Um, it allowed me to kind of customize my wheelchair to, you mm -hmm. know, to my liking. This is super embarrassing. And I usually don't tell the story on podcasts. But for prom and for graduation, I put spinners on my wheelchair, which uh, the rest of the graduating class absolutely loved. And looking back on those pictures now, um, I can look at it and shriek a little bit. But it's just a kind of a cool moment that allowed me to separate myself from everybody else. Um, so again, yeah, of course, there's a little bit of fear when it comes to any transition period. But I got very used to it very, very quickly. And it was a way for me to feel comfortable with myself. Yeah. And then one of the things, Steve, you said early on that I wanted to kind of go back to is um, maybe for those that just don't know, because obviously disability is different 
uh, with for every individual. Sometimes you know society or others don't think that and just put everyone into one category or, or class. But uh, for you, um, what did like uh, incomplete uh, paralysis mean? Uh, and and you already talked about obviously you were able to use crutches, but uh, how how did it impact you um, growing up and even maybe even to today? So my incomplete paralysis, uh, my injury level for those of you who are listening is at L3, L4. So basically I have zero sensation from my ankles down and my feet and my muscle function basically stops at my, at my knees. So, uh, incomplete basically means that the sensory and motor function is not the same as not basically at the same level. And, and like you said, everybody's disability is different. It affects people differently. Everybody has different body types, different ability levels. So to lump everybody into one classification, like we do with spinal cord injuries or people with cerebral palsy, it's uh, really the wrong way to look at it. Mm-hmm. But I like to say that I was pretty fortunate because um, while the tumor did do a lot of damage, um, you know, if they waited any longer to go in for me to go into surgery, it could have been a way more impactful uh, than it really was. You know, I, I like to tell people that, um, you know, disability is not ever something that you should shy away from. I constantly get asked by kids when I do speaking engagements, because kids always ask the best questions. If I could take a pill that would make me able-bodied, you know, would I do that? And would I change this aspect of my life? And I always tell them no. And it's a wholehearted answer because you have to embrace every part of you. The, the pros and the cons, the good and the bad, the insecurities and the things that give you confidence. And by combining all those elements of you, you get this really unique, really special, really awesome person that can either try to make the world a better place or, um, you know, use, use this life for however you see it. So I try to make this world just a little bit better for, especially for people with disabilities each and every day with my interactions and the work that I'm doing now off the, off the field of play. Yeah. And my wife's a third grade teacher. So I can tell you that kids will ask, will not shy away from asking any question. And they're just outright honest with uh, and blunt when they ask questions. <laughs> Absolutely. The questions I get asked the most, especially for uh, elementary school kids are um, how do you sleep? which I absolutely love that question because a lot of kids think that I sleep in my wheelchair. Um, How do you drive? How do you shower? Um, They're really perceptive of like, you know, okay, so here's this person with a disability in a wheelchair. How do you do all these activities of daily living? They really, their minds don't go to, wow, you're a high performance athlete. Like how do you shoot threes? They're really interested in quality of life, which I absolutely love to Mm -hmm. answer those questions because, you know, to a, to a kid of that age, that's, what's important. That's their world. And I absolutely love kind of expanding their minds through my experiences. Well, it's just, it's just eye-opening to them and edu- you know, ed- educational to them so that we have a, a, a broader understanding of, of disabilities in society. And I mean, one of our kind of uh, mantras at Moving United is just ask, you know, and, and that's, that's, I think the, the important thing because that way, that way people don't have wrong perceptions or, or inc- you know incorrect perceptions about about uh, athletes and individuals uh, with disabilities, and, and so when you when you started playing wheelchair basketball, I think you you're in Long Island, right? Yep, I'm originally from Long Island. Yes, and, and so I know that. Uh, so tell me about that program and and um, 
Uh, you know, I know that there's some wonderful wheelchair basketball programs across the country, but tell me about that particular program and where you got your start. Yeah, so it was a uh, kids program called the Long Island Lightning. They had a uh, junior varsity team, which is basically kids in high school, and then a prep team, which is kids under the age of 12, I believe. Um, this That program eventually evolved into what is now called the New York Rolling Fury, and they're a team locally here in New York. My favorite part about joining that team originally was it was one of the only teams where all of the kids, all the players are at like the same point in their life. We were all uh, high school students. We were all trying to figure out that crazy high school experience between <laughs> asking out boys or girls, trying to work through school, trying to get into college. Like we just shared such a bond because we were all at you know the similar points in our lives and we all loved to play basketball. So not only were we really successful, we got a chance to win our, I mean, we won our national championship my senior year of high school. Um, but those guys are still players and friends of mine because we shared that experience at a really formative time of our lives. And, and when did you realize that, you know, you could play at the collegiate level? So I got recruited. I only played juniors for two years and I got recruited uh, pretty quickly after I started playing. Um, I remember going through the recruiting process and visiting all the schools with collegiate wheelchair basketball programs. And I just felt drawn to the University of Illinois, which is where I, I attended. Uh, not only did I have a great relationship with their coach, Mike Frogley, who's one of the best uh, wheelchair basketball coaches, coaches in the world, but wheelchair basketball actually started at the University of Illinois. It was started in the 1940s for World War II veterans coming back from the war as a way to help them acclimate and be uh, live a more inclusive life back into society. And I just felt a connection with the history. Like this program at the University of Illinois, not only are we trying to win wheelchair basketball national championships, but we're trying to impact the world in a positive way. And I always still get motivated to this day to remind myself that wins and losses are not what's important. What's important is helping the world of adaptive athletes to expect more from this life, to help the next generation of, of athletes uh, expect and demand more than what we had growing up. And it, that was probably the, the main reason why I chose to go to the University of Illinois. Yes, and that, that school is definitely a pioneer uh, in not only wheelchair basketball, but uh, para track and field. And uh, and uh, what you know, what's nice is there's some more colleges and universities, you know, finally getting uh, up to speed on uh, on on uh, adaptive sports as well. So at least athletes, I think today probably have a few more options, but definitely can't go wrong with the University of Illinois still yet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, the University of Alabama is setting an example for collegiate adaptive athlete, uh, athletics by, I think they invested a $10 million, $10 million into this exclusive adaptive sports facility on campus. And then obviously anything that Alabama does, that means the University of Auburn has to do it. So they started a program. Uh, University of Michigan is in the works of starting a really incredible wheelchair basketball program. So um, honestly, the sky's the limit for athletes like me. I would say it's about time because there's so many adaptive sports athletes that need the opportunity to not only play at the next level, but to be provided a top quality education in this country um, so that they can give back and contribute to society in a more impactful way. So, um, you know, 
obviously we'll take any any program that comes up here locally in the New York area. CUNY just started a program that encompasses all the city universities of New York. And I've got a chance to work with them a lot. And it's, and it's definitely work that I'm passionate about. So um, the sky's the limit for wheelchair basketball in this country, for sure. Definitely. And and when did you graduate? Remind me of the year that you graduated. Uh, so I graduated college uh, in 2010. Okay. So you were, so you're, you were recruited then for team USA while you're still in college. My first team USA was in 2006. And I believe it was my freshman year of college where I made my first uh, world championship team USA there. And my first uh, Paralympics were in Beijing in 2008. And I was also a collegiate athlete as well. I took the semester off because obviously training for the Paralympic games was a full-time activity. Um, but I still was able to graduate in four years. So, um, I definitely prioritized my studies. Yeah. I was going to ask about how, how you judge basically competing at two different elite level sports programs, but I know a number of athletes, um, that are, you know, in, in college at the time may, may take a, a semester off here and there if they, if it, if it coincides with the actual Paralympic games or uh, leading up to the Paralympic games. And, and, um, so obviously you've been to, to four now, um, you know, what, what, what is the prospects, um, in terms of just, uh, we had two back-to-back gold medals for team USA. Uh, what is the, what is the competition like now, uh, compared to maybe in 2008 during your first Paralympics? Wheelchair basketball has grown exponentially around the world in the two decades that I've been playing. When I started on team USA, there were really three or four top programs in the world that basically always played against each other and would, uh, fluctuate between who would take home uh, a gold medal at any t- various tournament. Now, I would say that there's eight or nine programs around the world that uh, truly have a shot to to bring home a gold. And that just speaks to spreading the awareness, uh, people in other countries seeing the impact adaptive sports can have. And to be honest, basketball is a global sport now. And wheelchair basketball is pretty similar to able-body basketball. It's basically just us sitting down in a chair. So everybody can relate to it. It's one of the more inclusive Paralympic sports that we have. And so it's not hard for people to wrap their minds around creating opportunities for people with disabilities through a global game and environment like basketball provides. Um, we were we played uh, the host city of Japan in the gold medal game in Tokyo. And it was their very first time competing for a gold medal at any major wheelchair basketball event. So even as soon as Tokyo, you can see that young aspiring programs are investing a lot into this game and just creating a more competitive environment in wheelchair basketball around the world. And, I know you've played professionally, you know, and I'm envious of the fact that there is a, a professional wheelchair basketball program in, in Europe and you know, not here in the United States. Um, what, what is just that opportunity just for any, for any athlete to be able to, to, you know, compete at, at a professional level uh, in their sport? What's it like? Yeah, to be honest, competing at the professional level is, um, it takes a little bit of transitioning. Let's just say that because now your paycheck, your livelihood is dependent on your performance in, uh, on the field of play, mm-hmm. you know, while it might feel like that competing collegiately or competing at a junior national championship, or even competing at the, na- at the international level, um, you don't get, you don't get paid based off of your performance when you're on team USA, or at least we didn't back then. Now, um, 
having the livelihood, having your livelihood and the team success dependent on your performance. Uh, it was a transition, but honestly, whenever you're faced with a difficult moment, you can either let it crumble you or you can let it build you up. And I, I really did thrive off the opportunity of making this uh, my full-time activity, making sure that I lived a high performance lifestyle, which means that making sure that you're getting enough sleep, making sure everything you're putting into your body is allowing you to be the best athlete that you can be that day. And then having the mental fortitude to go out there and compete at the highest level each and every week and help your team win. I was very fortunate to get hooked up with a club team in Germany called RSV Landil and their community embraced me with open arms. Their players and teammates embraced me right after college when I was a hotshot young 20 year old that didn't know anything about the world. Um, but I had a wonderful experience. I signed my first professional contract, which was an eight month contract. And I stayed for six years because I had such an incredible experience in Germany. So I can't thank those, that team and the community enough for giving me that experience, but it absolutely was a transition in the beginning for sure. And just in your, in your opinion, would that model ever work in the United States? Wow. I, I, I think it can. Um, the tough part about that model here in the States is it's just a logistical nightmare. Um, I can tell you that for in wheelchair basketball this year, uh, I, you know, the New York rolling Knicks, who are the team that I compete for, we won our national championship. So we were the top team in the country this year, but then there was teams in DC teams in Dallas, and then a team on the West coast that was the second, third and fourth place finishers. And just making sure that we can fly back and forth uh, creates, you know, a financial investment that is just really hard for teams to manage here. We would really need the support of like a mothership, like an NBA or um, a, a very, very successful nonprofit organization that sees the value in creating a high performance environment out here in the States. In Europe, you only really play teams within your country and they're all driving distance. So it's not that hard to create a fixed schedule where you drive an hour or two every Saturday to play a game and vice versa when you play at home and away. So um, the model is definitely a little bit easier out, out in Europe, but that doesn't mean that we can't make it work here. There are tons of incredible athletes that would jump at the opportunity to play in a professional environment. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, uh, it just takes you know someone to kind of see that vision. I know that the athletes are ready for it. So hopefully, um, you know, we can, we can kind of create that in the next uh, few years. So um, what, you know, obviously after, after your fourth Paralympic games, um, I know that you and I met at the abilities expo. Uh, and so you've done a number of things uh, with Toyota. What are some other things that you're doing besides playing uh, for, for the New York team right now? Yeah, to be honest, I have told people that the impact that I can have off the court is so much more important to me now than the impact that I can have on it. I've had uh, an incredible amount of success in, in basketball on the field of play, but now my passion is about creating opportunities for kids with disabilities and people with disabilities that I didn't have growing up. One of the things I am passionate about is being a role model. You know, this was, I grew up before the age of social media. All of my athlete role models were able bodied athletes. And now I think it's passionate to use platforms like Move United, like Toyota, like Nike to 
provide people with disabilities a role model that they can see and interact with on social media that look like them, that have had experiences like them. And um, like I said in the very beginning, not only expecting more from this life, but demanding more from it for the next generation is uh, something I'm extremely passionate about. And it's something that uh, constantly motivates me each and every day. And I know you do some speaking engagements. What are some of the kind of themes that you talk about, uh, whether it's at, I know we talked about uh, whether it's at a middle school or at a, at a corporate, a corporate event, what are, what are some of the things that you talk theme themes that you discuss? Yeah. The, the basis uh, around my little spiel that I do whenever I'm talking to uh, kids in middle school classes or in the corporate world is the power of resiliency. Every single person that I've met, whether it be an athlete or whether it be in a corporate sector or what have you, um, everybody goes through difficult moments. Every single person has dealt with his or her insecurities, but it's what you do with those difficult moments. It's what you do with those losses, if you're referring it to an athlete terms, that ultimately determine your journey. The reason why I am sitting in front of you today as a two-time gold medalist is because we finished fourth in Beijing in 2008 and only won a bronze in 2012. I would not be a two-time gold medalist without those losses that I took in my career because each one was a learning experience. And it relates back to me having a disability. Those insecurities that I had growing up trying to fit into an able-bodied world, it wasn't until I learned how to embrace them where I became this kind of badass athlete. So it's what you do with those difficult moments that ultimately determine your path. And it's a, a common theme that I use in every single speaking engagement that I, that I do. And, and obviously most people know you as a two-time gold medalist and a, an, an excellent wheelchair basketball player. What are, what are some things people may not know about Steve Serio? You know, I would say that the, the thing that people don't really know about me, uh, because I really do try to, uh, portray this happy-go-lucky um, extrovert is that I am extremely introverted. <laughs> so when I do these speaking engagements and when I see people like you at the Abilities Expo and I have to be on for eight, nine, 10 hours a day, uh, the only thing I'm thinking about doing afterwards is crashing and recovering. Because while I feel like it's an absolute honor for me to be able to meet all these incredible people and share all these incredible experiences, I feel most comfortable when I am alone and I can have time to process those experiences in my own time, in my own space. So honestly, what I love to do is I'm a big reader. I really just like to sit on my couch and explore into a new world. Um, during COVID, it was a really difficult time for me because um, as a high performance athlete, I'm very well equipped to deal with success. I'm also very well, well equipped to deal with failure. I'm not very well equipped to deal with uncertainty and my introvertedness really didn't know how to process COVID, especially in the very beginning of it. So um, I would say that's the biggest thing that people don't know is that while uh, I am trying each and every day to create this role model for kids with disabilities, um, being an introvert is not a bad thing. And uh, it's not always something I like to share with everybody, but it is who I am. 
No, and, and I'm right there with you. I'm an introvert too. When I, when I took the Myers-Briggs type indicator, I, I learned uh, <laughs> that I was definitely yes. an, an introvert. And we just get our energy from other places, as you as as you kind of alluded to. So it doesn't mean we can't do anything, but it's it's just that we get our energy or our energy drive from 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 that alone time. And that, you know, one hundred percent. That's well said. So you said you like to read. What are you reading now? So honestly, uh, during COVID, I picked up the Harry Potter series again. And so I've been rereading Harry Potter. That might be a little embarrassing, but I'm a Harry Potter fan. uh, So that's what I've been reading. I dove into um, a couple of New York Times bestsellers uh, about social media and the impact social media has had both for on the positive and the negative. Um, You know, social media is not some place where I feel 100% comfortable, but I do feel like it's a tool that can be used for good. And that's what I try to do with my page and my following. So I just wanted to brush up on, you know, different aspects where I wasn't necessarily thinking about, like, for instance, if I portray this glorious world that I'm living in and full of all this privilege and all this success, you know, that could be portrayed as, you know, not so good for somebody who doesn't have access to all these things. So just constantly thinking about, um, how my page, how my following and how I'm, how I'm kind of displaying what is going on around me is really important to me. And, um, you know, I felt like I learned a lot by just kind of reading about other people's experiences with, with that tool. Well, since you mentioned social media and since you mentioned, since we talked about you doing some speaking, how do people connect with you if they're interested in, in uh, learning more or having you speak? Sure. So I'm not on Twitter, unfortunately. It's just a little too toxic for me and my introvertedness can't handle like sharing every single take that I have. Um, but I am on Instagram, Steve Serial 11 and I'm on Facebook uh, pretty regularly. That's kind of how uh, I connect with, with my following. So uh, I definitely encourage everyone to, to reach out. Um, if you have any personal experiences or questions, I'm always available. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to your audience and uh, be good, everyone.